Welcome to episode 35 of Red Board Rewind. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. Today my special guest is someone you can find on the Churchill Downs simulcast. It's Scott Shapiro. We cover races from last Saturday at Churchill Downs and some angles we go over handicapping with or without a morning line, how to handle a day of tough beats, and how knowing what horses who can run better underneath will help you become a better vertical player. This is Red Board Rewind. It's the same old story. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Scott Shapiro. Scott, how are you doing today? Good, Spencer. Good to finally uh, chat with you. Great to see the pods going so well. Appreciate it. So let's kind of just start off with, you know, obviously I started writing back for you in 2015 for your uh, old uh, Shap to Cap website. What really got you started in racing and what kind of had you start to build a website? Yeah, I've been in, uh, got into racing way back uh, as a kid. My dad, who not into it anywhere near we are, but was the guy that watched all the big races, always would watch the Derby at home. But uh, Old Garden State Park, which unfortunately hasn't existed for a while, was built up as this racetrack of the 21st century. So it was near my home. And I remember my dad taking me for the Jersey Derby a couple years. And the, and the first memory I have of real memory is when Spendabuck skipped the Kentucky, or sorry, the Preakness State after winning the Kentucky Derby to go to the Jersey Derby for that million dollar prize. Um, and ever since then I was in it and then I met a couple kids that were a year or two older than me in high school and they were old enough to bet. And, you know, they got me, you know, they got me these breeders cup tapes from the uh, late eighties. I watched them and just as all have always been super, super into handicapping races. And then, um, really about, uh, 2012, I was getting a little bit frustrated with my career and was always like, ah, maybe I could do this professionally or something involved in it and had a real big hit February of 2013 and decided to uh, start a Twitter account and get start a website, chapertocapper.com. And luckily for me, things took off. I had a lot of good contributors like yourself and uh, it's kind of history from there. It's funny you bring up the part where your dad wasn't really into racing, but you ended up becoming much bigger than him. My dad was the one who got me into racing and I have conversations with him now. I've read so many different books on handicapping and he kind of just always just handicaps off the fly. And I've now come to the realization this year that like I've almost surpassed him in knowledge. And now it's almost a weird conversation because he is almost asking me the questions that I feel I should be asking him. <laughs> That's what happens as you grow older, man. You start to take on that leadership role, you know, over your father. But yeah, that's great that you, you've you been reading up. I never was anyone, I never really read a lot of books. You know, I kind of learned on the fly. I always had a couple of racetrack friends until found the uh, Twitter sphere. And now obviously just a plethora of people to talk racing with all the time. But my dad loves the big races. Still will talk to him some, but yeah, more of a fan than, than we are. So when you first started off the website, obviously we had many key contributors before myself, but uh, when did you finally realize like, oh, this is something that can really rise to the occasion and be something? Well, I mean, I remember kind of being, you know, I, when I had that big hit in early 2013 at Santa Anita, I decided I'm, I'm, you know, leaving my career. I'm going all in on horse racing and, and gambling. I uh, started the website after a few months when I said, you know, just gambling itself isn't going to be enough for me. Uh, it's a lot of ups and downs. I've, I've got a master's in history. I've written a lot of papers. Let me try writing. And then slowly I just kind of turned into that and made that kind of the, the main goal um, I, I guess I wanted to believe that it would turn into something, maybe not as much as it has, uh, all along, but I would say probably when I started, when I got the gig with twin spires originally, I, I wrote for a horse racing nation on top of the website, if you recall for a while. And then, uh, when I got brought on by Churchill for the twin spires as a California rep, I started to little, believe a little more. But uh, it's a very challenging to get a full-time gig, and uh, probably took me until I got one, until I got here in Louisville, to really believe. But uh, it's been a good ride, and obviously ups and downs throughout it, but uh, it's exciting to be where I've gotten. When I saw you had gotten the job, I, I told everybody, I said, nobody deserves it more than this guy, because he just puts the hard work in. I remember 
obviously, my, this is why I do the audio podcast, not written so much anymore. My writing is not what it has always been up to. And I remember you would send me stuff every week. And I appreciate you always taking the time to edit and send me that stuff because I've worked with other people too. And they'll just put it up and I'll know there's probably mistakes. And to just get that feedback from you, I talk with guys like Marshall Sterling and how invaluable you were in helping us be- become better writers. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, I'm not, I, luckily for me, I, I consider myself a B writer. I have some A, A plus and A guys to, to, to edit my stuff, but I'm glad that the work I put a lot into trying to get at least adequate to better at writing. And it's great to hear that I was able to help you and Marshall, who also has come along well. When you look at kind of your beginning process of racing, how do you break down a race from top to bottom? The first thing I always do is I I watch the replays of the horses before I dive into anything else. But after watching replays and kind of getting a feel for the most recent races, some of them I don't have to do as much watching of if I remember them. But uh, I'm a big, you know, I'm going to look at the flow of the race. How is it going to set up? Try to visualize it in my head. So is there a lot of early speed? You know, was it, and then if so, were these horses that maybe some of the favorites, did they have easy leads last time? So generally speaking, just kind of figure out the flow of the race first, combine it with what I've seen visually, maybe horses that I thought, you know, had subtle poor trips, uh, things like that. And then the, I do use two, uh, more than I ever did before, I do use two analytics or numbers-based systems. I use Optics EQ, um, both for uh, their plot and their notes. I find that useful. And I also use the rags and sheets, which as kind of like a last part of my handicapping, just to make sure I didn't miss anything. Or sometimes you'll find horses that are just too slow to win races that maybe visually caught your eye and maybe you were fooled by the lack of interest the other horses were showing, things like that. Never been a big speed ratings guy or performance rating guy. Uh, I know a lot of people are, and I, I know they have a lot of use. But uh, the rags have really helped me separate some horses and kind of also at the same time see cycles uh, on there very easily. It's just a very simple read. But uh, first and foremost, Spencer, always looking at how the race shapes up. When we talk now, we've maybe we've gotten down to our contenders. What are some of your favorite angles when you look at horse for course, maybe a distance specialist or maybe second time blinkers? What are some of your favorites? I guess my favorite races to handicap in general are maiden special weights. A lot of them two-turn uh, two turf races even more so. Uh, and I like to use horses with experience. One start most of the time. I do use first-time starters at times. But I like to find horses that did subtle running, maybe running in spots, but but kind of we're still trying to figure it out. They could be third-time starters as well. And I like when those horses are taking on horses that have had several tries and have had clean trips because those horses that finish second, third, fourth regularly, tend a lot of them tend to do so for a number of times and burn a lot of money. So even if it's a horse that I'm going to single as one of the three uh, top choices horizontally or if it's prices that I can see because I think there's vulnerable favorites, uh, using lightly raised horses versus horses that have kind of run their races is one angle I like. Obviously, lone speed is an angle I think that just about everybody likes. You know, if you can find a lone speed horse, especially one that may go under the radar, that's good as well. And uh, I really, you know, I've always liked cutbacks, mile and a 16th type cutbacks to a one-turn distance type race, like a seven furlong or a one-turn mile. You know, maybe not horses that are dead closers, but kind of horses with that tactical speed that maybe cannot be too far out of it, but that slight cutback in distance and that one turn instead of two can really accentuate that late kick. I love the fact that you said you love to handicap maiden races. They're also my favorite type of race. We hear so many people complain that, oh, there's not enough information or barn new and this horse goes off at five to two and wins by six. People always say that they don't like to handicap maiden races. For me, it's that they don't put enough hard work in. You look at guys like Benning South Street with his trip notes. If you don't put the, the time in an effort to try to beat certain racetracks or you know certain conditions, you're never going to get better at the game. Yeah, and I think one thing is if you're not someone that watches a lot of video replays and you're more of a data guy, I can understand where you're coming from because there's just limited data in terms of numbers. But I think there's a number of data points you can look at. You can look at some trainer patterns. You know, if there's a big enough sample size, I think trainer statistics are very worthwhile. But really, it's those video replays and sometimes even pedigree. Uh, Not everybody's a fan of that, but, you know, in addition to the use of different kinds of data, I kind of like that the people that use computers don't have any sort of edge 
And in fact, the computer players, for the most part, from what I understand, don't attack those races or at least as much. So it gives you kind of uh, you kind of get avoid that uh, that part of the market. You were talking trainer stats and talking certain amount of starters. What is the number? Is, do you have a hard and fast number? Or is it just kind of for me, the number would be 20. I like to see at least 20 starts and around five wins. That to me tells me that the trainer stat is probably a profitable one or at least that he knows what he's doing with it. Uh, that that's that's pretty fair. I don't have an exact number, and I guess I, I would say as I as I've grown as a handicapper the last few years, I've used trainer stats less. Uh, certain ones I think mean more to me. First time starters, some barns just don't have their horses cranked to win. They're just not even trying to win. If they win, great. So that one's always been important. Same with the second time starter. It shows that tra- uh, ho- that trainers like to get you know give their horse a race and then maybe have them ready for a peak effort second time. I think one angle that gets used quite a bit is first-time claim, and that definitely uh, speaks volumes, but it's very hard to find these days with the numbers out there value, good value with the guys that are so good first off the claim. It's, it's pretty well known without you know doing any sort of research, but there are guys, and I think of Tom Amos first and foremost, second off the claim can kind of get overlooked, and the reason I think it's an important angle is because these guys claim horses sometimes for small amounts sometimes for forty, fifty thousand dollars and they kind of are still learning the horse when they get him in the barn, him or her in the barn for the first time. Maybe kind of do a little tinkering, maybe stretch them out, cut them back, try a different style, equipment change, and they really have them ready for the best effort for what they do at the second time out. I know everyone knows this trainer Robertino Diodoro, and I think I mentioned this stat before, but me and Marshall were just one night just compounding stats, looking up different stuff, and him fifty percent off the claim uh, it's like 27%, but with Orlando Mojica, he has a positive ROI. With David Cohen, he does not. So it's obviously they're the top two riders for him. So when I saw Mojica the last few weeks of the Oakland meet, I was kind of cashing really well and surprising how watching the Cohen horses just get knocked down to 9 to 5, 8 to 5 and run up the track. It was a really weird stat to find. That's interesting. I wonder if part of it is because the Cohen ones tend to get bet more or if there's something more to it. How far does that go back, that positive ROI? I think that when we looked at it, at least when I looked at it, it was last five years, but I can't remember how many stars were in it. I'd have to relook it up in Formulator again. But it was just a really bizarre stat for someone who hits it 30-plus percent. Right. I, and it goes back to what I was saying about the first off the claim is as good as these guys are. And, you know, you can take advantage maybe by singling at times or keying on top, but betting them straight to win as good as they are and as high a percentage as they win at, they just get bet so hard. It's hard to make a profit just betting them uh, straight to win. I love everything we've talked about so far. Let's jump into these races, though, Scott. It was the fifth race at Churchill on Saturday. It was a 150K optional claimer, one and one sixteenth mile on the turf. Now, with these types of races, you see it's the NX, N4X. Usually, you don't even see anything above an N2X. What do you kind of do with these types of races? Do you look at them as a listed stake almost, or is it still that allowance type? Yeah, I mean, this is basically a stakes race. You're going to have maybe a few horses that uh, are not worthy of being in a stake race. But for the most part, you have horses coming out of stakes races, maybe thinking they can avoid that uh, Chad Brown type or that superstar that would be odds on. But other than that, if you look through this field, you have a lot of horses coming out of uh, grade two, grade three races, even some grade ones. And then you have a couple horses that are maybe, you know, on the verge of moving into stakes company that, uh, and you don't see this condition very often, you know, an, op- an optional $150,000 is very hard to find. So, you know, you probably get some, some trainers that are happy to maybe, like I said, Avoid those top, top, top runners in the, in the division. But, uh, yeah, this is a stakes race, more or less. Do you wish that there were more N3X and N4Xs, or are you happy when it just kind of stops at, you know, the 62 N2X like they do out in California? No, I love these races, mm-hmm. Spencer. You know, especially on the turf. I mean, there's so much. They're, they're not the kind of races for someone that, that wants to do some quick, lazy handicapping um, because there's a lot you got to digest. You got to do a lot of work in my opinion, to come up with the winner and use all of your toolbox, if you will. But uh, these are challenging races. You can find some sneaky stuff and and trying to figure out just how how the pace is going to go can be very challenging, but very fruitful if it pays off. So let's talk about your picks. Who did you like in this race and why? 
Yeah, I landed on number five parlor in the race. Um, and this was a race I had to spend quite a bit of time out to separate. And in the end, I thought this was a horse that was uh, moving in the right direction. That last race on March 18th, winning by three lengths was against significant, you know, I it might look like it was against just marginally uh, worse or lower horse, lesser horses, but this was a big step up in terms of the class of the horses he was facing. But he just did it so easy that day. Mike Maker, incredible when he claims these horses for high amounts, at getting them to improve and, and turning them into stakes horses, and with this being an actual stakes race. And I thought he would sit a real good trip off of uh, the pace setters and get first run on the closers. For me, obviously, this race started in the morning when Thread of Blue scratched out. And just trying to then reconfigure some of the horses I liked. I'm, I've always been a fan of Caribou Club. Whenever I see Tom Proctor in the in the races, I always tend to jump towards that horse. Nice. I like when I see a horse run close to the finish. Obviously, the last race in the Canadian Turf at Grade Three finished six by one and a half. People just see that six, and I feel like they instantly cross a horse out. But to finish in that type of race by less than two lengths, really good race. I also in, did like Parlor improving Mike maker. What else can we say? I mean, how many times does he have to do it with a turf horse before <laughs> he like finally gets some credit? The horse I ended up on top was the number six, just Howard Graham motion being 20% with a positive ROI off 180 day layoff is a big time stat with a lot of starters, 56 and just, he had run credible numbers in the past and Joel Rosario on big days like this just always seems to come with that one weird long shot. That is what everyone is like, we bet every other Rosario on the day. Why didn't we bet this one? Yeah, I picked Just Howard for second. I thought he would get a, a mid, nice mid-pack, comfortable trip in this spot. Uh, Graham Motion had won, uh, had won, let's see, with one horse off a lengthy layoff, I believe, on Thursday or Friday. And then he had ended up winning with sharing off the layoff a little bit later in this card. So I wasn't super concerned about the fact that this one didn't have any recency and appeared to have a lot of uh, quality works coming into the race. What did you end up doing from a betting standpoint in this race? I'm st were you alive still in the pick five or had you started like any other type of vertical or horizontal wagers? Well, though I was not alive, I think it was the race before when the Chad Brown Philly ran off the screen, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Um, so that knocked me out. I thought, uh, I think Ad Adgoff is the name. Um, she knocked me out, but there was, so I did two things. I started off a pick four with both the, um, there was a, there was a middle pick four that started race five. I started with, uh, parlor and just Howard. And then I bet, uh, parlor to win. For me, I ended up betting the just Howard and parlor Dutch bet. I always tend to like these when you have a horse that you don't like as a favorite, Try to find a little Dutch bet in there. I still believe that people say, like, oh, only don't bet two horses to win in a race. For new players, you just kind of want to get that ball through the hoop confidence where you just need to try to, you know, cash some tickets instead of just running second every time with one win bet. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fine strategy. You have to make sure you're doing it with the prices to be big enough. You don't want to bet a 9-2 to two and a 6-1 to because then you're really cutting down. But these horses what went off here at... Eight to one, or no, six to one and nine to one. So yeah, getting even if you get parlor home, you're getting paid three to one on the money. Let's see if Scott can get through the pick four, or if I can cash my win Dutch right now. And they're off. English B toward the outside. Just Howard, Mr. Misunderstood. First premio is there. Made you look down inside mixed star, hustled out. Buys for the first time. Real story for the downside post. Tries to get a forward spot as well. Made you look. And Mixstar go head-to-head. -head. Real story. Angles over to be three wide into the turn. First Premio tucks in behind. Racing in fourth. Caribou Club up against the hedge. Saving ground from fifth. English B is running along in sixth. Spooky Channels back in seventh. Mr. Misunderstood running along in eighth. Hembry is ninth. Just Howard is tenth. Dr. Mounty eleventh. And Parlor at the back. The opening quarter in 23-2. and two. Down the back stretch they go. Mixstar shows the way by half a length. Real story, stalking on the outside in second. Mild pressure from that one. Made you look has backed off to be third down inside. And then it's first Premio racing fourth, two and a half lengths off the lead. English B three wide past a half mile pole. Caribou clubs down inside, running along in sixth. Spooky channel mid-pack while seventh. Mr. Misunderstood wide on the far turn, moving up from eighth. 
Farther back in the field, Parlor's winding up with a four-wide bid out of ninth. Dr. Mounties buried at the inside tenth. It is a tight pack racing for the top of the stretch, and they're fanning five or six wide off the turn. Parlor takes the worst of it, nonetheless has rallied to the front. Parlor's in front, top of the stretch. Mr. Misunderstood is their English B. First, Premio got stopped. And then it's Hembry coming down the side of the course with Spooky Channel, but Parler with that blitz on the far turn is kicked away by two and has a 16th to hold. Spooky Channel finishing fast. Hembry outside, farther out, just Howard. Here comes Spooky Channel to surge and win it. Spooky Channel runs down Parler, then it was Hembry, just Howard, and Dr. Mounty. And the number one Spooky Channel gets it done. Julian Leperu was up. Winner ran a 98 buyer and paid $18. What a tough beat for Parler. Brutal, Spencer, you know, uh, having to go back and rehash this race. You know, it was a great race to handicap a lot to it, but very painful. Obviously, uh, didn't turn out trip-wise the way I had anticipated for Parler, who broke last, was taken back way off the pace, was wide on the backstretch, extremely wide on the uh, far turn, and uh, still looked like he might get the job done, but that's almost an impossible voyage to win at uh, on the turf. When you look at a horse that maybe you didn't have your expectations or you were you just kind of like glanced over a horse like Spooky Channel, now we're going back and dissecting it. Is there anything that you see that you type would tend to have missed? Because to me, it just seemed like he wants longer. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we talked in the intro about cutbacks. And this is another situation where a tactical speed horse maybe or this horse was actually on the lead in the Pan American when last seen. Um, cutting back, we kind of could figure if... The race collapsed, which it did because of the multiple moves in it, that he might have the uh, ability to outfinish this group with the foundation from the beginning, from the uh, from the longer races. He was fresh. He was a win machine. He has 7 of 14. And I know Julian Le Peru takes, takes heat a lot of times, but when races go like this and the flow is like this and it collapsed, he's very patient like he was on Spooky Channel, kind of waited for his turn, found a seam, and came through. Uh, Julian growing up was my favorite jockey. I remember waiting outside for him one time at the Saratoga Jockey Room. He signed my program. It was one of those cool things. And then I remember the first race, he was on a horse, and I was like, I hate this horse. I'm not betting. He's like, my dad goes, you have to bet. It's Julian. I go, no, I'm not wasting money on this crap horse. Julian won by like six. (laughs) So... Yeah, I I mean, I get to see a lot more of him now that I'm in Kentucky, obviously. Um, I think there's times when I completely agree that he needs to be more aggressive uh, and, and comes too late, you know, the wait all day attitude, the strangler that people call him. But in certain situations, he is a great rider. And one of those is on the turf when the race collapses. He's going to be patient. He's not going to make a move like uh, Jose did on the parlor. You know, if, mm-hmm. if Julian was on parlor, I think I might have been cashing tickets. Well, in, a, in a race with this many horses, then obviously when you're watching replays, you have to go back and watch it four or five, maybe even six times. Did you notice any trips when you were first watching the race that maybe this horse will be a good bet back or was it more you have to go back and look at it? It's a good question always and it's something you can gain a lot out of. I think I guess the one thing that I noticed was that maybe a horse that I think is going to get over bet next time and that's number eight first premio. Um, He found a perfect spot. And he moved towards the leaders early like English B did because they were long shots and, you know, uh, Parler and Mr. Misunderstood started moving. But he got stopped, and I think that's going to be in the running line. And I think he was – I don't think he had any run anyway or not enough run to be a factor. So that was the first thing I noted that there will probably be another traffic, uh, another traffic or some sort of negative comment. There was – he had a brutal trip last time at Gulfstream, so got bet off that. No real horses that I'm really overly excited to bet back, I would say, other than, I mean, just Howard. I mean, sorry, Parler obviously is going to get hammered next time. Yeah. Out, you know, and just Howard, I could make the case, the horse that you liked and the horse I picked for second, that there just um, needs to be up closer. There was just a lack of urgency. Joel Rosario, one of the best in the game, but sometimes he'll strangle a horse back, and he did that in this case. And I don't think he ran any worse than the horses that finished ahead of him. There just was a lack of urgency, and he was very wide in the lane. So just Howard be a horse maybe I'd give a second shot to, second start of the form cycle. Seeing a horse like Caribou Club run dead last, obviously this horse is a multiple-graded stake winner. I don't know if he has any more conditions left. I would seriously doubt it being 9 for 24. What do you think, or what would you end up doing with a horse like this off this bad of a performance? (sighs) 
I mean, you would think, you know, the first thing I would think of is giving him time, but he mm-hmm. had time, so that wasn't the case. And he had a good trip in this race. It wasn't that. So I think what I would do with Caribou Club, and I'm, it's interesting, and they must have they must have thought that he lacks the punch that he had as a younger horse. I remember this horse being uh, out in California when I was there, and he was more of a one-turn, kind of down-the-hill type mm-hmm. horse. So I think that I would probably try cutting him back to one turn again, maybe taking him a little further off it. But unfortunately, it might just be the end of the, you know, maybe you have to drop him in class further because it seems to be tailing off. I know he got a pretty quick, ran some quick numbers uh, at the end of last year, but hasn't really run that well. I know you mentioned losing by six and one, uh, losing by just one and a half lengths in the Canadian turf, but they all kind of came running. That was a weird race. That was when Guido um really sped off early mm-hmm. and somebody got the quick jump but it was a blanket finish and i still think this horse is capable of kind of running to the wire with other horses i just don't know if he's going to have that same punch this year as a six-year-old let's jump on to the next race race six it's a nx1 allowance going six and a half on the dirt we're getting away from your wonderful turf course what were your thoughts in this race going into it I thought uh, I landed on number three, Picasso, as my top pick. This horse has kind of taken a long time to figure things out for a, a, a barn that is good at figuring things out pretty quick, Steve Asmussen. But looked like the light bulb came on, Spencer, on March 20th at Fairgrounds. He had the inside trip. Granted, it was not a good field. The horse major attraction that ran second has not come has not broken his maiden yet. But it just looked like he kind of was living up to that, you know, tap it late blooming billing. Um, so I landed on Picasso thinking he would uh, he would fire back well. Didn't wasn't really in love with the horses with more experience. But the way I um, the way I really handicapped the race is I thought number five breaking news ha- making the second start of his four year old campaign an angle that I really like if they run a, a good race get back to some of their better numbers in their first start off the layoff from their three year old campaign. Uh, I thought he would run a, a good race. Didn't think he would be good enough to win. I picked him for second, but as he had shown in, in throughout his career, he's a horse that likes to finish underneath and doesn't really have that fire to win. So I picked him second and uh, thought um, the favorite get the prize uh, was a beatable horse off the bench going just six and a half and, uh, you know, was willing to take him on. It's interesting. We are completely opposite in this race. So get the prize ended up being my top pick just because I always like when you see a horse that the only time he sprinted obviously had a slow uh, pace up front and just one going easy, but then they started to stretch him out and they were trying to, I don't know if they were going to try and get him on the derby trail. They were just thinking that they had a two turn horse all of a sudden. Now they give him a layoff. They put him back into a sprint. I just thought he's one for one sprinting so far. He's going to be the short chalk. I didn't really see anything else. I really liked in here. Breaking news to me was a proven loser at the level and like you had talked about three seconds and two thirds just seemed the type of horse that liked to be that bridesmaid never the bride and for picasso i just didn't know if the 77 buyer was going to be good enough because the buyer par for this type of race is an 89 i drop it down five points based on a jim quinn angle from a bunch of his books down to an 84 and it still wasn't going to be fast enough so i was interesting interesting to hear that you like picasso on top when he just didn't look that fast enough to me on paper Totally understandable. He's not really a horse that I like going in on paper on any data points. But when I watched the race, I just kind of felt the light bulb came on. And as you mentioned just a moment ago, I didn't really like much in the race. So Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was going to take a par effort, if you will, to win this race. Um, And you mentioned get the prize. I kind of looked at it probably the fastest horse on numbers, but was off the lengthy layoff and kind of saw it maybe as a prep for either a two turn or a one turn mile race down the road. The number five breaking even I had talked to was being a proven loser. Is there a certain amount of races you like to see at a class level before you finally just kind of like, you know, cut the umbilical cord and just kind of say like, okay, I'm divorced from you. No more. You can leave (laughs) until you beat me finally. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is price matters about price. This horse was 12 to one on the line. I didn't, like I said, I picked him for second. Mm -hmm. Definitely watching the race as the only win or the only time he was close to winning was a three length victory at uh, set eight to five in the slop and had burned a lot of money early in his career, but had shown some value underneath in exotics as, as time went on. But, uh, you know, I guess I would more come down to not a certain amount of races total 
But at a certain, you know, if you've had two or three tries where I don't think you have legitimate excuses as to why you didn't win the race, mm -hmm. that's when I'm ready for you to drop. So it'd be more, you know, there could be a horse that may, you know, I don't like these horses that consistently get in trouble and take money because of it. And you can make excuses race after race. But if there are a couple excuses and the price is right, then I'm going to give them shots until I don't. But you're right. This horse looks like the kind of horse that when he runs his races, he's never going to get to the wire first. One other horse I want to talk about, the horse that was third on the morning line, High Crime. This just seems like a horse that they don't know what to do with. They, they have him sprinting. They stretch him out. They put him on the turf. Now he's back on the dirt. What do you kind of tend to do with these types? Do you kind of just look at it as the trainer is just experimenting over and over and over again, or do you take a hard stance with these types? Yeah, no, I guess it comes down to the barn and you're right. It does. I've been surprised. I thought this horse, when he broke his maiden at Gulfstream on January 12th, that mm -hmm. was extremely impressive. Excuse me. Then, then he ran fine in the swale uh, last February. And then he ran a big race at Keeneland going a mile of 16th. Cutting him back on uh, Derby, I think that was Derby Day or Oaks Day. It was either Derby or Oaks Day, I remember. And he ran a credible race that day. The race Hidden Scroll was in and got the, you know, the race collapsed late. Yeah. I really had no idea why they went to the turf with this horse, potentially the pedigree or not really sure. And then the long layoff, he was dead on the board too, Spencer, which was uh, pretty telling. And, uh, you know, I, it was a horse I picked for third, but if I knew he was going to be open up at 8-1 to one off that 7-2 morning line, I probably wouldn't have done so. For me, when I'm looking at the trainer stats, I see 0 for 14 turf to dirt, 6% on the dirt. Maybe he is a better turf trainer, but it just seemed to me like they had thrown the kitchen sink at this one, and now they're just like, okay, anything that sticks, what do the owner want to do? What do you want to do? Like, let's get all <laughs> the jockeys that have ridden this horse. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very, very valid point. And uh, he'd been working over the dirt, obviously, at Keeneland, a number of works. I, I would be willing to give this horse maybe one more shot if they bring him back at the similar, you know, seven furlongs, mile, six and a half on the dirt. And this was just maybe a, a prep, maybe he needed the race. Uh, it remains to be seen how these horses overall that come in from Keeneland that were working there uh, over that kind of fast uh, training, you know, over the track that kind of trains fast. Maybe they need a lot of them are going to need a race at Churchill. So I'd be willing to give high crime another shot, but he certainly did not run, as we'll see very well in this spot. What did you end up doing from a wagering standpoint for this race? Uh, I, I, uh, I keyed breaking news uh, for second and third in the trifecta in this race. As I mentioned, I really liked the, the pattern of second start of the four-year-old campaign. I thought he had shown a number of races against equally or better fields where he could, uh, where he could kind of plot along. And um, Ramoket had one winner of, to start the meet, I believe. So thought maybe it was potential. And he had run, hit the board in uh, two of four at Churchill. So I keyed breaking news for second and third in the try with the logical horses: High Crime, Picasso. Um, get the prize or I didn't actually, I didn't use get the prize on top and smart time who I got bet down, um, for third, for on top. And then hopefully needed breaking news to finish second or third. For me, I used get the prize in the daily gallop head to head season tournament, which I ended up losing eventually to, uh, Nikki, Sam, Nikki was on our live stream as well on Saturday. Great job done by her. Let's see if Scott can get his trifecta home or if it get the prize could have got me what my one lone winner on Saturday, right now. And they're off. High crime with a good start toward the inside. Hidden ruler from mid-pack is out well. He's a babe is flashing speed. But it is high crime and hidden ruler to speed off together down the backstretch run. He's a babe chasing out a third, two lengths back. Picasso advancing inside from fourth. Smart time in the clear, running along in fifth. Breaking news is now six. Flaster way out in the center of the track. Racing seventh. Big man can is eighth. Get the prize. Comes away ninth. It is ten lengths off the lead. The back two are Creme de Cerise and Zoe's Delight. The opening quarter in 22-1. and one, And now hidden ruler assumes control. And skitters clear to lead by two. High crime continues to chase from second. He's a babes under pressure trying to move up out of third. Picasso's bottled up inside fourth. Breaking news is winding up with a wide rally. Smart time comes on through from between horses. Farther back in the field. Get the prizes winding up as well. But his fans six wide off the turn. Hidden ruler, the one to catch top of the lane. Here comes he's a babe pouncing and in between. Smart time breaking news. Center of the track. 
Get the prize continues to rally. There's one for long to go. Hidden rulers digging down. Smart time surges. Breaking news as well. He's a babe, has a shot. Get the prize far outside. Smart time's got the lead close to home. And it will be smart time to win it. Smart time, half length in the end. Get the prize was there with Hidden Ruler and Breaking News in the photo for second, third, and fourth. And the number 10, Smart Time, gets it done with a 78 buyer paying 11.20. Scott, you were right about this. The winner did not get up to the buyer par. Yeah, it looks like a weak race for the level. Maybe a couple of horses that can move forward uh, going you know, off the layoff. But uh, definitely looked like a weak race to me going in. And definitely uh, that was why I thought maybe Breaking News could kind of hit the board, uh, making that second start of the four-year-old campaign with the recency. Now, I don't know how much if you use formula or you take a lot of notes, do you automatically will just downgrade every horse that comes out of here pretty much when they're trying to go into the level next time? Not every one, only because I think there's reasons to believe that some of a couple of these horses can use this race to get back, get back to a better effort. Mentioned high crime. That was his first race in what uh, nine months. He had shown some talent before. He was dead on the board, which suggests to me that the barn uh, kind of told people maybe somewhere that this horse needed one. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if he opens up a little more live next time. And mentioned get the prize, your top pick. Had been off for a while. I think he might be a little bit better served with a little more ground. But horses with recency, um, like Hidden Ruler, like uh, my top pick, maybe Picasso, maybe a horse that needed the lead, needs the lead, doesn't like to get dirt kicked in his face, so mm -hmm. maybe can make an excuse there. And Breaking News was a horse that – that was his best effort, in my opinion. That's kind of part of that angle. If if they don't run well in that second start of the four-year-old campaign, I'm not going to really give him another shot. He had every chance to win the race, and you know he's not he's just not a win type at this level. I know you had talked a lot about horses prepping in the talk before the race. What do you look for? What are you kind of guessing about when you're saying, "Oh, this horse was probably on a prep this time compared to not"? Well, I think some of that goes back to the trainer stuff we talk about. Some mm -hmm. of these guys just have their horses ready to roll uh, first out or first off the layoff. You know, I'm not worried too much when Bob Baffert has a horse first off the layoff. Chad Brown, a lot of these guys, can they, they're ready to fire fresh, hard trainers. But uh, with the horse like Get the Prize, I thought, you know, it was a long layoff. And I think even though he broke his maiden at six furlongs, you know, they stretched him out right away. So I think he, they might have, you know, been at – a little bit surprised that he won first out. He made that easy lead nine to one almost at fairgrounds for Al Stahl. That that's that's pretty. That that's not taking a lot of money for a barn that wins a lot. So just kind of got the feeling this horse wants more ground. When it comes to high crime, I think more so than anything was just how dead he was on the board for a seven to two second choice for a horse that has taken some money, even though it's mm -hmm. a low profile conditioner. Now, we're, we're obviously halfway through the card at this point. Are you much of a bias guy? Did you kind of tend to notice anything going into the later half of the card? I believe in biases, but I think they're overstated at times. I mm -hmm. don't think there's a bias every day. I think there's people that believe that. And I definitely am not into making early assessments like that happens, especially when a lot of the early races on some of these cards are not uh, the highest quality animals. So unless a race absolutely goes collapses, a lot of times it's good to be prominently placed in some of the slower races, just because these horses can't make multiple moves from the back and kind of lack a punch. So they really need the field to come back to them where you get into the more talented fields. Uh, these horses have a little, a little more of an ability to overcome a bias, but yeah, not, I'd say I'm middle of the road, Spencer, when it comes to biases. Let's jump into the last race then. Race number 10 at Churchill. It was the grade three mat win. It's sure nice to have a derby prep up again. This was going one and one sixteenth miles on the dirt, and we get the return of Maxfield. Yeah, Maxfield uh, had done nothing wrong, but we hadn't got to see him in so long, Spencer. He'd run two massive races in Kentucky. Then, as we remember, he got scratched right before the day before, I believe, the Breeders' Cup mm -hmm. Juvenile at Santa Anita, which is come back to you, you have to look at that race now and think that man if he even came 90 <laughs> percent, he would have jogged home in that race it's been such a, a an anti key race but uh good to see him back and uh yeah i mean he's a horse that has a lot of talent and uh one that i was excited to see return where did you end up going in this race obviously we had the early scratch of mystic guide a lot of people i know had like the two pneumatic 
Pneumatic, yeah. Pneumatic. And uh, for me, I had actually ended up on the six New York traffic. I am a Paco Lopez fan. I know a lot of people aren't, but I just like how aggressive he can be and always seems to get the horse in a really early position spot. Yeah, I, 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 I like betting on Paco. I mean, you know you're going to get a good, aggressive trip. My, my spot in this race was uh, willing to take a chance against Maxfield off the long layoff, a horse that had struggled to get out of the gate in his first two starts, so didn't see a ton of early speed signed on, so was a little bit concerned he would be too far out of it. I knew he'd been training well, but I thought he'd be an underlay. And I ended up landing on Pneumatic as the top pick and, and New York traffic for second and used them both in horizontals, um, er, um, the late pick five, and then played doubles with pneumatic into a couple horses in the finale. When you have a horse that's a favorite coming off of a long layoff, and you know it's a derby prep, but the way the schedule has been so chaotic this year, and you see the kind of fields we're getting, does it kind of change your philosophy based on the past years? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think so. I think that because this horse had injuries, it wasn't as if there were, I mean, I know he wanted to run in the Florida, uh, I think in the Florida Derby and it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. But um, if I recall, but he had hiccups that had nothing to do with the coronavirus and the pandemic. So I don't think it changed my philosophy or thinking too much at all. Is there any certain jockey that you like to see on a three-year-old when they're on the trail? Do you have a specific, for me, it's, I know a lot of people are like, we'll jump to the Ortiz brothers. For me, I like seeing Johnny V on a horse. I end up I tend to end up betting a lot more pleasures, I feel, in the Derby and going through that in the past. I don't think there's any one specific. I like to see jockeys that have experience with the kind of uh, – with the with the uh, amount of hype and stuff around the Derby picture. I mean, the Matt Wynn was just $150,000 in a grade three, but everybody's thinking Derby all the time, especially in Kentucky. So there's a lot of interviews and a lot of cameras on you when you have a potential Derby prospect. So – I think if there's a number of guys, both locally and nationally here in Kentucky, uh, locally in Kentucky, and then nationally, of course, the New York guys, some ca- couple California guys, uh, a couple guys that are in Florida uh, at the time. But I think any of a number of guys are fine with me, but I would prefer that kind of seasoning so it's not a little bit too much for them to handle. When you were watching the board for this race, was there any horse that kind of stuck out to you like, wow, I'm surprised he's taking that much money or wow, this horse is a really big overlay? You know, I kind of thought that if I was going to beat Maxfield, it was going to be with pneumatic and New York traffic. New York traffic was 10 to 1 on the line. Mm -hmm. Definitely thought that was not going to happen. I was hoping maybe pneumatic would kind of settle in at maybe 7 to 2 or 4 to 1. That wasn't even close to happening. I think the uh, attachment rate morning line was a little bit uh, deflated, and he ended up, as expected, drifting up. I kind of thought this was the the way the race was going to go. I was a little bit surprised Maxfield was as short as he was. But, uh, you know, the hype was there. He had been training well, according to everyone that was watching him. So not too many surprises in terms of the tote board. I will never, ever bash a morning line. But even so, I'm looking at races tomorrow at Tampa, and the first race is a maiden race. And the morning line favorite 8-5 to five is an 0-for-16 maiden. I've almost come to the point where I don't even want to handicap with morning lines on anymore. Because it just tends to, I think, switch my ideas around before I've even fully looked at a race. Do you tend to look at morning lines, or are you more of someone who would turn them off? I try not to look at them. I think that's a good idea. I think what I've come to as a mostly horizontal player of these points, when I see a morning line like New York traffic that's too high, I think the best way to take advantage of that is maybe playing horizontals, trying to close out or back end of things with horses like this because there are a lot of people that will look at the morning line let's say they they single in the first leg with a horse they like they're going to always include the lower morning lines or not always but a lot of the public will include horses that are low on the morning lines and may you may get a little bit closer to what the morning line suggests than what the tote board will suggest when the race goes off by doing so but yeah it's tough spencer there's been so many examples lately of morning lines that just have been off. It's not an easy job. A lot of these people are doing multiple things at racetracks, mm-hmm. but uh, it's definitely something that I try not to, to let get to me too much. For me in this race, I was on New York traffic trying to actually catch up to Nikki at this point. And I, when I saw him go down to, you know, seven to two, I was like, God, I just need to try and get this horse across the wire. We were obviously both against Maxfield. Let's see if we can get the winner here in the Matt win right now. And they're off in the mat win. 
New York traffic, Paco Lopez puts them right in front. Celtic strikers showing speed. Pneumatic is up close as well. Maxfield not far behind. Attachment rate is five wide major. Fed spun out six wide in that clubhouse turn. So they move around the opening term and here. Celtic striker out to set the pace. Pneumatic in tight toward the rear running in second. New York traffic going to rate now. Backs off just a bit to be third. Four wide for attachment rate. Major fed spun out wide the entire clubhouse turn. Necker Island sneaking up on the inside to grab fifth now. Flapjack is back into sixth. Major fed runs along in seventh. Maxfield comes away in eighth, but is only about three lengths off the lead with five furlongs to go. Shake some action is at the back with informative. The opening quarter in 24 seconds flat. Not a lot of pace as they move down the back stretch. Celtic striker room at the inside for Pneumatic. And Pneumatic comes on through to challenge as they race for the far turn. New York traffic three wide and putting in a bid now. Necker Island set to strike while in behind. Attachment rate is there. Flapjack right in the thick of it. Major Fed has been wide on both turns. Maxfield is asked to go now. Four lengths to make up but is forced to go wide. Shake some action and informative. Racing for the top of the stretch, New York traffic and Pneumatic. Pneumatic tries to cut the corner off the turn. New York traffic comes a little bit wide. These two hook up with three sixteenths to go. New York traffic's in front. Maxfield is making progress. Here comes Maxfield rallying boldly down the center of the track. New York traffic wanders outside. Pneumatic digs in. Maxfield continues to close. New York traffic and Maxfield. Pneumatic is down inside. Maxfield is thinking derby. Wins by a length, running down New York traffic, pneumatic, and attachment rate. And the number 10, Maxfield, got it done, paying 460 with a 95 buyer. I mean, now this horse looks like a credible derby horse, whether or not what happens going forward. Oh, yeah. It was a very, very nice comeback race. The connection, Brandon Walsh, Godolphin, Jose Ortiz have to be very happy with the race. He got out of the gate, so it looks like some of the mental issues he had um, have been at least temporarily uh, resolved. We'll see moving forward. I think what was most interesting was that um, he was kind of closer to the pace in a bunched field. So maybe he didn't have to run as much as I thought he was going to in this race. If they kind of went faster early to kind of keep up or to have too, you know, a lot to do when they turn for home, but there's no doubt Maxfield has to be considered in the upper echelon of Derby contenders. It was one of the better stretch runs of the day too. And something that I, was a little bit frustrated with at the end of the day. Obviously we talked two of the three races. Uh, we both ran second by less than, you know, if you combine it a length and a half, when you have so many of these close races where it's a length ahead and nose, what do you kind of do? If you take a bad beat like that, do you kind of just take a step back, take a breath or do you, what do you do in those instances? Well, it's tough. I mean, when you're, especially if you're working, like I am uh, on the Churchill down simulcast, mm-hmm. you kind of have to just <laughs> take, you know, blow, Blowed over real quick. It, from a gambling perspective, it's not a bad idea to maybe uh, walk it off. But, you know, it, it all depends how you feel about the card. Maybe if the next race is a race you don't like, uh, which it happened to be. I didn't end up betting the last race in this situation because I was a little bit, you know, tilted from the previous number of results. Wasn't It didn't end up being a good day for me other than one trifecta uh, that I hit. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that depends on your situation and on the the way the races shape up after a beat like that. Obviously, you having to put out your selections, I don't know what your deadlines are, but I'm sure they're a day or two in advance, and then trying to figure out scratches and all that, it becomes a very hectic morning for you on race days. For people who tend to maybe almost play too many races, do you have a certain number that you try and play every day, or are you just looking for value at that point? Well, I only handicap one to two tracks. You know, most of the time I lock in on one track, especially mm-hmm. when Churchill's running. And, you know, that's what I'm kind of responsible for. I have to be able to talk about just about every horse potentially. So when that's running, when Keelan's running, uh, I'll, you know, maybe include some New York. So for me, it's never too much kind of figuring out the amount of races because I'm really not handicapping that many races. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still struggle, though, you know. 20-something years later, I guess, we're bordering on, I mean, I guess I'm at 30 years almost. Yeah, 30 years, geez, of handicapping <laughs> and gambling on horse races. But uh, but I don't try, to, I don't put a number, but I do struggle not putting anything on some races when I've put, you know, a lot of time in. But I try to maybe put one-tenth the budget into a race I don't like versus the ones I do like. I really think it's a good move to press up and uh, be aggressive. 
definitely an important factor when it comes to handicapping. Is there any horse out of this race that you're excited to see come back except for Maxfield in their next derby prep? Well, I think Pneumatic had a little bit of an excuse. Uh, the lack of experience, certainly a challenge to take on these these types of horses. He's, he'd been to a, drawn to the outside in first of his first two races uh, at Oaklawn Park um, in February and then in April. So it was a different voyage. And he was kind of in an in, uncomfy position, especially for an inexperienced horse. I kind of thought Ricardo Santana Jr. a couple times was going to send through. Uh, I think he was anticipating New York traffic and Paco being more aggressive, I, I as well was when Paco broke first and he didn't go to the lead. I was very surprised he decided instead to stalk just off the pace of Celtic Striker, which was intriguing and it ended up making a slower pace. But I think you can make the argument that Pneumatic got a lot of learning out of that race. The problem is, you know, unless he runs in the bluegrass or a race a least of this quality, he's never going to be a good price because of his, you know, on paper two first and a third, Steve Asmussen and those things. And then another horse I thought maybe a number 11 attachment rate we talked about was a little too low in the morning line, didn't take that much money. But uh, I think he, he was, can maybe you could make a case that this is a one-turn horse, not a two-turn, never fault three-year-old, uh, the trainers and connections of a three-year-old uh, for kind of trying two turns with that Derby and Triple Crown aspirations, but uh, I think he's done his done his best racing early at one turn. Uh, he was super wide in this race throughout. So if attachment rate cuts back to one turn in his next start or maybe two starts down the road, that's a horse that I might give a shot as well. Look out for attachment rate on the cutback from Scott Shapiro. Scott, we're just about out of time here. Appreciate all you have done for me in my career. Appreciate it. and good luck to you the rest of the Churchill meet. Where can people find you on social media? Yes, yeah, Spencer, it's been fun catching up with you and doing this. You can find me on Twitter at ScottShap34. Uh, my picks will be up daily, churchilldowns.com under expert picks, along with uh, my colleagues Joe Christofek and Ed DeRosa, still uh, 20 or uh, sorry, uh, let me do the math here, 19 days of racing as of when we're recording this. Uh, so a lot of time for some real good racing. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for having me, man. Absolutely. Thanks for it all, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show and my special guest, Scott Shapiro. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Forntail. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. <laughs> 